When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, I'm Joss, and this is Reading Women, a podcast inviting you to reclaim the bookshelf and read the world. Today, I'm talking to Tia Williams about her latest book, Seven Days in June, which is out now from Grand Central Publishing. You can find a complete transcript of this episode on our website, readingwomenpodcast.com. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. So I was absolutely ecstatic to hear that we had the opportunity to interview Tia. Seven Days in June is my favorite book right now. It has so many elements that I love. So we have a second chance romance spanning 15 years between our protagonist, Eva, and her love interest, Shane. They are a writer couple. And we also have an aspiring teen therapist, discussion of intergenerational trauma, mothering, chronic pain, and a history and lineage of a black Louisiana French Creole history. And for our international listeners, Louisiana is a southern state, and because of the way American history is taught in school, and yes, I do mean the whitewashing of our curriculum, we don't have the opportunity to learn about some of the things that Tia talks about in our interview. But before we get into that, let me tell you a little bit more about the author. Tia Williams had a 15-year career as a beauty editor for magazines including Elle, Glamour, and Essence. In 2004, she pioneered the beauty blog industry with Shake Your Beauty. She wrote the best-selling novel, The Accidental Diva, and penned two YA novels, It Chicks and Sixteen Candles. Her award-winning novel, The Perfect Find, will be adapted into a Netflix film starring Gabrielle Union. Tia is currently an editorial director at Estee Lauder Companies and lives with her daughter and her husband in Brooklyn. So like some of you know, we are very passionate about advocacy for disability, chronic pain, and chronic illness representation on Reading Women Pod. So I was incredibly excited to talk to Tia about how she incorporated her personal experience with intractable chronic migraines, as well as the medical system into Eva's story, um, and also what that looked like in the context of all of her relationships, romantic or not. We spoke about how like sexism and racism in medicine extends to other industries as well. Eva and Shane are both black authors, but Eva writes erotic fantasy romance. There is a vampire, there are fairies. It's great. Um, and Shane writes contemporary slash literary-esque fiction. Um, and we really see how the publishing industry treats both of them similarly, but also quite differently. There is also trauma in both of their histories, including addiction and intergenerational trauma. 
And of course, we have a very bright young mind in Audrey, who is Eva's teenage daughter, basically kind of a stand-in therapist for her classmates. And it was so interesting to hear Tia talk about the manifestation of her character and how Audrey came to be. Anyways, I could go on and on about this book for hours, but without any further ado, here is my conversation with Tia Williams. Hi, Tia, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, I'm so excited to be here. Oh my gosh, we're so excited to have you on. Congratulations on the release of your sixth novel, Seven Days in June. I love this book so much. I cannot scream about it enough. Um, so I was wondering if you could maybe first give our listeners a brief synopsis of your book. Sure. First of all, I'm so flattered and thrilled that you enjoyed it. So I want to start off by saying that. Um, so Seven Days in June is about two famous authors who seem to randomly meet for the first time at this literary event in Brooklyn um, and sparks fly, but unbeknownst to everyone there, they know each other because they spent um, a very torrid, romantic seven days together in their teens. Then they went their separate ways. They haven't spoken to each other since, but we find out that they've been secretly communicating to each other over the past 15 years through their books. Um, yeah. And so they show up in each other's lives and have to figure out what to do with each other. And oh my gosh, do they ever show up in each other's lives when they come back together? Yes. yes it's very dramatic. <laughs> it, it is definitely very dramatic and amazing. And we'll be back with more from this episode of Reading Women after a word from our sponsor. The sponsor of this episode is Mubi, a curated streaming service showing exceptional films from around the globe. Every day, Mubi premieres a new film. From iconic directors to emerging talents, there's always something new to discover. With Mubi, each and every film is hand-selected, and it's like your own personal film festival, streaming anytime, anywhere. The thing I love most about Mubi is how they give me access to films from around the world from the comfort of my own living room. I don't have a cinema that plays films like this around where I live, and I am able to watch films from Turkey, Germany, Mexico, Japan, just by logging into Mubi, and they're all there at my fingertips. So I'm in the US, but Mubi is available in 195 countries, so wherever you are, there's always going to be something for you. You can try Mubi free for 30 days at mubi.com slash readingwomen. That's mubi.com slash readingwomen for a whole month of great cinema for free. Thanks so much to Mubi for sponsoring this episode of Reading Women. So I want to start off by asking you, um, on the podcast, we are super passionate about advocacy for disabled, chronic pain and illness representation, and we are so appreciative of Eva's story. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about her chronic migraines in the book. Yeah, so her chronic migraines are my chronic migraines, actually. Um, I was diagnosed when I was nine years old. And, you know, they're daily. And my diagnosis is intractable chronic migraines. And intractable, intractable means uncurable. Um, so medication works for me for a little while and then just stops working. Um, it's very frustrating. It's affected everything in my life, 
you know, I've always felt like it rules my life because, you know, it affects whether or not I'm lucid, whether or not I can go to the event, whether or not I'll be able to stay till the end of the party, whether or not I can raise my child this week or need to send her to her dad's house. You know, it's gotten in the middle of relationships, platonic and otherwise, uh, because I'm not the most reliable person to make plans with. Um, And it's just really, really hard. Like you can feel like you're a migraine with a person attached, uh, you know, instead of the other way around. And I always wanted to write about it, but because I write, you know, sort of sparkly, funny, sexy love stories, I was like, where will that ever go? Because there's nothing sexy about chronic pain. And then Eva kind of popped into my head and it seemed, it seemed perfect for her. It seemed like not perfect for her pain isn't perfect for anyone, but it just seemed to fit in with her personality. Like she's someone who would have chronic pain problems. Um, She's kind of set up for it. Mine don't have anything to do with stress. Mine are a barometric pressure thing, but a lot of migraine sufferers, it happens um, because of, you know, debilitating stress or, you know, traumatic incidents in your past all kinds of things. And Eva's background is very complicated. So yeah, I just, I kind of wanted to show that despite having a chronic disease and migraine is a neurological disease, that this woman is still able to figure out how to mother. She's able to figure out how to be in a relationship, how to have great sex, like how to be an artist, um, all in spite of, you know, this pain that she has to deal with. That was a very long winded answer. Oh my gosh, no, I could literally talk about chronic pain and, and how it affects just kind of daily life all day. So <laughs> I definitely appreciate the long-winded answer. Please keep them coming. Um, <laughs> but I think, you know, one of the things that is interesting about Eva's chronic pain is that obviously there are so many layers of sexism and racism in medicine and and Eva being a black woman and experiencing chronic pain. I was wondering if you maybe speak a little bit more about how you wanted to portray that in the book. Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't say it outright, but I think it's clear, like, in the flashback chapters when she's a teenager, like, she's not being treated well, like, by her medical professionals. You know, it's what happened to me. Like, after a while, they get doctors get frustrated because you're not responding and then they take it out on you and then they dump you. But before they dump you, they give you a bunch of Opiates. (laughs) Opiates. <laughs> You're not allowed to do that anymore. But I mean, for example, I was on methadone for 12 years. I would fall asleep literally in people's faces, just not out. It was insane. Oh my gosh. Um, and obviously, you get your body gets you know addicted to this, and so I, we would have to keep upping the dosage and upping the dosage, and it was just uh, a disaster. And then if you rewind further back, like into my childhood, it was just oh you're probably just about to get your period or, oh, you're very type A and you stress yourself out about school. Like, just relax. Everything will be fine. Maybe you should loosen up the straps on your backpack because no no. one believes women. (laughs) Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh no. No one believes women and no one believes black women at all. And, you know, I, I think there's no one more powerless than like a 13 year old girl trying to tell her doctor she's in pain. Um, We're just not taken seriously. And Eva wasn't taken seriously. And, you know, because she was given these, you know, really powerful, weird drugs to combat her pain, 
it turned, it, it created an addiction problem when she was young. Right. And that and happens a lot. Yeah, for sure. You know, and, and I think that that is one of the parts of the book that I appreciated so much, right? Is, is that addiction piece, the mental health piece. And of course, the thing that I found so interesting is one of my favorite characters of, is of course, you know, her daughter, Audrey. Um, aspiring therapist and, and stand-in Snapchat therapist at her school. <laughs> yeah. So how did Audrey's character maybe come to be? Well, Audrey was inspired by my, I have my own 12-year-old Audrey, though she does not have a blooming therapist side hustle. She is definitely, um, like she hasn't monetized her gifts, <laughs> but she is definitely an armchair therapist. You know, and I know why it's because, so I got married in December, but before that I was a single mom for 10 years. So her dad and I got divorced when she was 11 months. So all she's ever known is us co-parenting. And when she's with me, it's just the two of us. And, you know, you sort of build a Gilmore girls bubble of estrogen and inside jokes, and like <laughs> little rituals and the kid sort of raises like meets the mom in the middle in terms of age and sophistication and maturity right so when she was nine she was hanging out with me and my 40 year old friends who would come over and she heard the way we talked and sort of adapted into one I mean she would come out of her room while while I'm having like a thoroughly grown-up conversation with my friends and be like Hmm. Okay, Auntie Charlotte, I heard you use the word hopeless. Like, how did you come to that word? Oh my gosh! <laughs> yeah, I swear to you, um, because there's always hope, right? I mean, let's let's unpack that. And it was just totally natural for this little baby. You know, she didn't even have all her teeth yet to be speaking like that. And I just thought it was hilarious and so indicative of a of a daughter of a single mother because you kind of become contemporaries. And so with Audrey, I wanted to capture that relationship and that that dynamic and also she's sometimes a stand-in for the reader like she's the one with the most sense in any room that she's been and so the reader can see these issues coming from a mile away or can see how Eva and Shane are being dysfunctional you know in the same way that Audrey can my gosh. Yeah, for sure. You know, at times when I was reading the book, I found that Audrey was maybe kind of like the, I guess, more rational voice, if, if we can call her that as a teenager. Um, and maybe kind of in, in certain ways, maybe a narrator, kind of like a sage type of voice there for sure. Yeah, totally. Um, I also found it really fascinating, you know, the juxtaposition of the trauma in Shane and Eva's backgrounds with kind of how Audrey is basically like a stand-in therapist for her classmates. You know, I was wondering if there was any intent behind that kind of comparison there. Well, yeah, I mean, I wanted to show there's a lot of kid in the book. We, there's Audrey, who is this, you know, preternaturally mature and insightful 12-year-old. There's Ty, who is a couple years older than her. And is stunted emotionally, has, is truly alone in the world, has no guidance whatsoever, and lives in a very dangerous environment. There's Shane and Eva, who, you know, in the flashback here uh, chapters are a few years older than him. And all, they don't have anyone either, but they do have each other. And so I was trying to show, like, how sort of adolescence hits differently depending on circumstance and environment 
given love and, and family and support and just sort of emotional caretaking, Ty and Jean-Bieve and Shane might have been like Audrey. So I, I wanted to juxtapose all those, you know, sort of youngsters, uh, you know, against each other to show kind of, it's kind of devastating the random, the randomness of the setup you're given as a kid and everything depends on that. If your mom sucks, like you are starting with such a deficit. My gosh. Yeah, for sure. You know, and just kind of like speaking to that piece, there is such a long line of women mothering relationships, you know, starting with Eva, Lisette, you know, everyone else in that line. Um, And a big part of her history, obviously, is her Louisiana French Creole roots. So I was just kind of curious to kind of, you know, speak about the intersection between these mothering relationships and her kind of historical roots. Yeah. So I I wanted to touch on the idea of generational curses and like matriarchal lineages. I had a friend growing up who only had women in her family. Like the, there just were no men, mm-hmm. like the men <laughs> didn't stay or the men died or, and no sons were born. And so there weren't really any dads, which sadly is, you know, a little bit of a, I should, shouldn't even say a little bit. It's an epidemic in the black community. Anyway, like a lot of kids grow up with their dads not around, mostly because they're in prison for ridiculous crimes. And I just think that's interesting. It's like, you know, that 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 island that Wonder Woman is from. <laughs> it's just like all these Amazon women. Right. <laughs> um, you know, and, and all you know is women, women warriors. And so there was a little bit of that in it. Also, my mom is Creole from Louisiana, and it's a culture that isn't, that a lot of Americans don't really know about. And it's a very rich, exciting, you know, colorful culture. I mean, everyone knows the food, right? You know, gumbo and crawfish etouffee and jambalaya and things like that. Um, But people don't really know where it comes from. So uh, Louisiana French Creoles are Black people who who are very mixed up. So they're descended from usually a a French plantation owner and an enslaved black woman. And then over the years, there's uh, intermarrying with Native Americans, Spanish immigrants, and a lot of the enslaved Haitian people who rebelled in Haiti and made their way to Louisiana. Um, and, And sort of that mixture of different cultures and nationalities and backgrounds created this like really, really colorful, rich culture in Louisiana. Everyone has French last names. Everyone's grandma or great grandma speaks Creole, which is kind of a mixture between Southern black English and and bastardized French. Uh, The food is amazing. The music is amazing. The storytelling is out of this world. Like there's this fascinating oral tradition and the culture kind of encapsulates the, the history of racial dynamics in America because it's all, all right there. Like every Creole person can trace their roots back to a French guy and an enslaved black woman. And in their bloodline, it's just the, the history of how this country came to be. So it's a really, really interesting, uh, 
culture. And then there's the whole idea of since so many Creoles are very, very light skinned and some even look, you know, completely what, what you would think is white, blue eyes, curly blonde hair. Back in the earlier parts of the 21st century, there was a lot of passing too. Once you got to an age where you could leave your bayou town, you would move somewhere where no one knew, where no one knew you. And, and that's very looked down upon, obviously, today. But back then, it was a matter of life and death. Like, what they were escaping in those southern towns was, you know, terrorism mm-hmm. and brutality and violence. So sometimes it was just like, okay, I can go somewhere and have babies that I don't have to worry about being, you know, dragged out of bed and burned at the stake. Right. So... Yeah, there's a lot there. And Eva doesn't know her family. You know, it's just been her and her mom. And she's not connected to Louisiana or any place because she grew up all over the U.S. And so she has this burning urge to find out more about the women in her family. Yeah, you know, I think that's so interesting, all of the trauma that you speak about, but all of the very rich, you know, storytelling and how deep the history goes. I feel like I see all of that show up in Seven Days in June in some way, shape or form. Yeah, I tried to. I mean, it was a lot to get in there. When I was brainstorming this book, like long before I ever sat down to write it, I was like, I was speaking to my agent and I was like, I kind of want to write something about mothers and daughters and Creole (laughs) stuff and also have a second chance romance. Um, Maybe they're writers. I would love for there to be a piece in Brooklyn and then also a piece in Louisiana. And then I also want to have flashbacks. And she was like, absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) Because that's terrible. Like, what is your book about? So it took a while to to figure out how I was going to marry all those things together. Gosh, well, I do think that it ended up being the perfect marriage. Although, you know, I do have to say that I would not have minded had it gone on for another 200 pages or so. <laughs> <laughs> I could have used way more. I was like, I need more. I need more. Yeah, I could have written more, believe me. <laughs> My gosh. Okay. So I guess maybe speaking to a little bit more of that romance plot line, maybe that you just brought up. My favorite trope, second chance romance, always looking for a new one. Um, what was mapping out? Yeah. What was mapping out Shane and Eva's relationship like with all of their angst and pining, et cetera, et cetera? Well, that was actually the easiest part because I, I had such a clear vision of their story when I sat down to write it. And it all sort of came about when I was watching Romeo and Juliet with Leo and Claire and it got to the end. And I mean, I've seen this movie 5,000 times, but I, I never had this thought and <laughs> it got to the end. And I was like, what if Romeo and Juliet hadn't died? Like what if these like lust filled love struck teens spent this, you know, week or a couple days together and then sort of went their separate ways and then met each other at, 33, you know, it's like, Oh, Hey Romeo, where have you been? Like, what would it, would it have, do soulmates have an expiration date? Like, would it feel the same? Would they remember everything the same way? Um, would they have conflated it in their heads over the years? Would it have faded? What would they be wearing? Like, what would they say to each other after all that time? Like would all be forgiven? So I had all these questions that turned into and there was that and then I always wanted to write about like a writer couple and those two things brought about the the story of Shane and Eva 
Oh my gosh, this is amazing. The, the combination of the Leo version of Romeo and Juliet and also a writer couple. We, we love to see it. We love to see it. Yes, it was so fun to, to write that. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. And then also, yeah. I had this moment, like, I don't know if you watch American Horror Story. Gosh, yes, I have seen some seasons, some seasons. Okay, it's gotten really weird, but the first season was really good. It's Murder House. Yes, And (laughs) the whole story of Tate and Violet, which is totally warped and demented, but like she was this teenager living in this haunted house and her dad was a therapist and one of his patients is this teen boy, this like very grunge antisocial grumpy boy and then when he would come for his therapy appointments they would like sneak off into the attic afterwards and have this whole like really angst riddled relationship and they spent it was like these two teens that were totally depressed and falling apart but connected with each other and spent all their time in this one room and I I mean that's why Eva, well, jean and Shane, I put them in this house for a week. Like, I just wanted to see the two of them in a room and how they would relate to each other and what they would say and how things would go. Imagine if that was your tagline, Romeo and Juliet meets American Horror Story, and that was kind of what you pitched to publishers. <laughs> oh, yes, a winning combination. <laughs> for sure. It would show up on book Twitter and, and everyone would explode as, as they do in, in seven days in June. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Oh my gosh. So as we kind of know, you know, Eva is a black woman who writes erotic romance with fantasy elements. Shane is kind of on the other hand, maybe a more, I don't know, like contemporary slash literary fiction type of dude. Um, And their experience in the book community is really different. Um, And I was wondering, how does this compare to maybe your personal experience or maybe things that you've seen in the book community? It's so meta. It's so meta that I was like, <laughs> I best. will never sell. No, I would never sell this this book. I when it, when we were shopping around to publishers, I was holding my breath. I was like, because they're going to get to the part with the panel where all the black authors start telling the truth about what it's like writing. Um, you know, the publishing industry, for those of you who don't know, is very very white and historically has always been. Um, and that's posed a problem if you are any sort of writer of color, because if you're writing in a genre or you're writing characters that white book editors aren't familiar with in real life, haven't come across, it's hard for them to believe that it's real or believe that it's valid or believe that anyone will read about it, which you can imagine makes it really hard to try to sell a fun, fizzy rom-com about glamorous black people. Because if you don't know any and you don't see any on TV and what you do know about, about black people is, you know, really that they're symbols of oppression. And what kind of books are you going to publish? You're going to publish really academic tomes about, you know, the racial inequities in America, or you're going to publish you know, fiction about enslaved people or civil rights era maids. I mean, this is what you learned at school. This is what you know. But anything in between, you know, a Black fantasy novel, Black westerns, Black romances, it's kind of a stretch. And so there's a panel where a bunch of Black authors are talking about what it's like to be um, Black writers in 2019, which is when the book takes place. And they tell the truth of all of those things. And 
editors know this. They all know it, but no one likes to be called out on your, you know, uh, shortcomings. So I was like, okay, this is going to be the end for me. (laughs) But I was like, you know what? It'll be worth it if this is the end, because I had to tell the truth. Because honestly, when I was shopping around my last novel, The Perfect Vine, which is now so exciting, like it's being turned into a film for Netflix starring Gabrielle Union. Yes, for sure. Congratulations, Um, by the way. Thank you. So like from the outside, it looks like this total success story, but actually it was probably the darkest moment of, of I've had like in my professional life, you know, trying to get this book sold because everyone rejected it every major publisher, every minor publisher. So it was published by this very, very indie publishing house. But the reasons why it was rejected, it was always like, oh, such fun writing. So, so cute. Um, I really wish that you would touch on any sort of racial injustice that Jenna has felt as a Black fashion editor in a largely white industry. Like, there's got to be oppression, right? Like, where can you touch on that a little bit? Like, was it hard for her? There were some editors who didn't believe that a black woman could be a fashion editor, which was super maddening because I was one for 15 years. Right. Oh my gosh. Um, and even if I wasn't one, why couldn't, why couldn't we belong there? Like, why can't we, why can't you see me there or my character there? So I had had a lot of you know, I still had PTSD from that situation. So I was like, you know what? I'm just going to fully be very transparent in this book about, you know, the publishing industry. And if I get canceled over it, then, I'll, you know, at least I'll feel good about the fact that I told the truth. And luckily I wasn't canceled. No. <laughs> Thank goodness. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. And, and you know what this this conversation like really reminds me of is you know how in the book like Eva comes across this white director who wants to cast white actors as Sebastian and Gia who are both written as black did you experience that at all as you were you know scoping out folks for for your Netflix adaptation I never experienced that so Sebastian and Gia Sebastian is a vampire and Gia is a witch and so the director's whole idea is you know they're already other So why do we want to further other them by making them black? Uh, You know, she's like, that's like, who would see a movie about a Taiwanese unicorn? And Eva's like, I want to see that movie. Yes. (laughs) You know, and I've never experienced that, but I have friends that write in the fantasy and speculative fiction space. And they always come across this issue because since white is like the default race, it's just too much of a stretch for people to to wrap their brains around like, you know, a South Asian fairy. You know, it's just it's 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 just it's too already, much. Too overwhelming. It's too much. Like too overwhelming. <laughs> like it's already a fairy. Like, can she please be white so we can all sleep at night? Oh my gosh. Um, and so <laughs> Yeah, I just I wanted to talk about that a little bit, but no, I I've I've never experienced that before. Good. I mean, I mean, I'm glad to hear that you've never experienced that before. But but it's so true, right? In, in SFF spaces, that that sometimes that does happen, right? It's like this pandering to like this majority white publicist space, and also you know some of the white audience that is just like we just can't handle this stuff. And and there's kind of this overtone of like, are we being too much? And then it's just like, but you, if everyone is always going to see you as being too much, it's kind of like, then why not, right? 
Exactly. Yeah. Why not just go there? But look, I mean, it's such a struggle. Uh, I have friends that have done things they didn't want to do, like change their characters, added more white ones, you know, because they just wanted to be published. It's a struggle out here. I don't want to judge, but it's just not for me. I, I, I couldn't do that. Yeah. No, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And so I've always wanted to ask you, who would you cast as Sebastian and Gia in the Cursed adaptation? Oh, do you know? No one has asked me that. People always ask, like, who even Shane are, but no one has asked me Sebastian and Gia. Um, honestly, like, Sebastian with the whole eyes, like, he has light eyes. I What is his name on... Um, Grey's Anatomy, he's so hot. It's ridiculous. Oh, is that Jesse, Jesse Williams? With the Jesse Williams. Okay. <laughs> With the sort of so beautiful. And he looks like a vampire. Um, and then who would be a great witch? Who's a witchy? You know, I love, um, I don't know if you saw WandaVision, but Tiana Parrish. Oh, I thought she was just fantastic. And she has like a mystical vibe about her. I mean, she plays a mystical character. Um, but yeah, I can see her doing that. All right. Well, if Netflix folks are listening to this, <laughs> let's call them up. Let's go. Let's go, guys. Let's go. <laughs> let's get on it. All right. Cool. Sounds good. Um, I did also want to ask you, you know, like we were talking about, Eva and Shane are both writers. And they use writing as kind of a function of healing and connecting and this unrequited pining for one another in the book. Um, in what ways did you want to incorporate writing, I guess, in that sense? Well, uh, for so many of us, it's therapeutic. And it certainly is for Eva and Shane, but in, in totally different ways. Like for Eva, like she comes up with this vampire stand-in for Shane and this witch stand-in for herself. And by animating these characters and having them do what she wants them to do. It's like reclaiming this relationship that tore her apart and giving herself the power because finally she can control how it all works. And also like if they're fantasy characters, it takes the bite out of the reality of what actually happened because it's just all make-believe. And that was the original exercise she was doing in her dorm room in college when she wrote the first cursed book. She was heartbroken and needed a way to, you know, use writing about them as fantasy characters as a coping mechanism. Did she have any idea she would be sort of having to write these books for the next, next 15 <laughs> years of her life? Right. No, she had no idea. But, you know, moms have to keep the lights on. And then for Shane... I think he, you know, he struggled with alcoholism and he would go on these crazy benders for years and years and fall off the grid and then write, write a story, you know, and it would heal him a little bit each time um, until it got him to AA and he got better and it stuck. Well, we, we hope it sticks. So they approached it in, in different ways and, and he tells her, it wasn't, he wasn't just writing about her. He was writing to her. And Eva was his comfort person all those years that he was struggling when they weren't talking. And it made him feel better. It made him feel connected to the world to write to her. 
So they were both using writing as ways of healing. And, uh, you know, again, so much of us do that. I, I know I, I, I do it all the time. I mean, I did it with my, with the character of Eva, you know, because I'm always so sick and I was also a single mother and I also had no sex life and was so aggressively single. Like I just couldn't see anything. It's hard when you're in such a dark place and you're in so much pain and everything is so effortful and hard. It's hard to see a light at the end of the tunnel or any sort of joy, like coming into your life. And I created Eva and gave her like, you know, a lot of the symptoms and, uh, uh, that I have too. And I wanted to see if she would be able to find joy and love and sex and professional fulfillment. And she did. And by her finding those things that helped open me up to finding those things. And honestly, it's very weird. I don't believe in like spiritual stuff and manifestations and I'm not religious and I wish I was, but I'm not. But Halfway through the book, I met my husband. It's like I, oh I literally like wrote I him into it. existence. <laughs> yeah. So like the scenes when, you know, with Shane and Audrey and like Shane is coming into their little twosome, like the three of them in the kitchen, like that was all, those were things I was experiencing in real life, you know, introducing my soulmate to my other soulmate. <laughs> it's like um, a tricky, delicate situation. So as Eva was going through it, I was going through it too. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. What was that like for you, you know, kind of seeing pieces of yourself in Eva and, you know, kind of like knowing that this was going to be out in the world one day? Well, at first I wrote, at first I was writing in first person and it was all from Eva's point of view. Like there was no Shane's point of view. There was no Audrey's point of view. Um, And we even get Cece and Lizette chapters from their point of view. So before it was all Eva. And it was way too close. Like I, I, I got massive writer's block, like a fourth of the way through and I just could keep going. And it was because it was way too close to home. Like I would start writing and then I would burst into tears and then it was just way too hard. So I had to devise ways to remind myself that these are characters and this is not me. And, you know, changing the point of view really helped. And then also delving deeper into Eva's backstory. You know, mine is not like that at all. My mother, by the way, would like to let everyone know that she is not Lizette. She's fabulous. (laughs) Thank you very much. You know, so that's really where we differ. Like I have, you know, I have a great relationship with my, with everyone in my family. So giving her this really dramatic, nutty, you know, lineage I was like okay this is definitely not me this is okay this is not real life because before it was like I was writing I was like exposing my diary to the world right and you know I wonder if Eva and Shane like could speak to us today like was that weird for them you know like having writing basically to each other in their books and kind of like knowing that the whole world would see it eventually right well there's a thing where it's like in in my last book, The Perfect Find, it's totally me. Anyone who knows me would be like, wow, she really went there. Huh? <laughs> like it's a relationship that I had. It's a situation I was in. It is every, it is totally me. So if you know me, you know where exactly where it came from. But the fascinating thing is that most people reading it don't know me. So they have no idea. So it's always a delight for, to, 
talk to people and have them be like, where did you get the inspiration for that? Or like, wow, Jenna felt so real. Like, how did you research that character? And I'm like, ah, <laughs> <laughs> you, know, like, you know, it's like a, a secret, you know, you're tickled in secret that you fooled everyone almost. And I think that that's probably how Eva and Shane feel too. It's like they've pulled off this grand deception and there's something a little exciting about that. And also knowing that you share this secret with someone. I mean, there are things in the, there are, there are moments in the perfect find that are really like inside jokes and inside memories that I shared with this guy, you know, and only he and I would know what it's about. It's kind of a very romantic writer thing to do. Oh my gosh. And like, that's why I have always been looking for a book with a writer couple with a second chance romance for all of this to play out. (laughs) You gave it to me. (laughs) Yes. Yes. My work here is done. (laughs) I love it. Amazing. Um, So that is a great segue into, I guess, my next question. Um, I was just going to ask, you know, I'm sure that everyone is going to fall in love with your writing by reading Seven Days in June. um, And then we'll want to pick up all of your works if they have not already. So I was just wondering if you could let our listeners know about some of your previously published novels as well. Sure. So my first novel um, was called The Accidental Diva. And it was about a 25-year-old beauty editor at a fashion magazine who sort of falls for a guy from what used to be the mean streets of Brooklyn, <laughs> which is not, not <laughs> so anymore. Um, and he's a uh, up-and-coming spoken word poet. And it's really a slice of life in the New York magazine publishing world of the early aughts. And totally taken from my life at the time because I was a 25 year old beauty editor who was in love with a poet. So there was that. And then I wrote two YA books, uh, the it chicks and the it chicks 16 candles. And that is sort of like a modern day fame, um, series. And it was uh, about a group of multicultural diverse kids at a fictional New York city performing arts academy um and then i wrote the perfect fine which i just told you guys about about a um 40 year old fashion editor who has the rug pulled out from under her she loses her job she's like way behind with the digital revolution stuff all she knows is print suddenly she's a dinosaur in her profession and she has to reinvent herself at this digital publication where everyone is half her age and she's just sort of drowning. And also her boss is her old frenemy from the nineties. Oh gosh. (laughs) And then to further complicate things, she falls in love with a coworker who is literally half her age. And then there's seven days in June. Amazing. Love it. Well, if you guys have not picked up Tia's other novels, now is your chance to do so. (laughs) Definitely do that. Um, what are some recommendations that you would make for readers who enjoyed seven days in June and are maybe looking for things with any similar aspects, all the things that we've talked about? Oh, there's a great book called beach read. Um, I think it's, let me just look up. I think the author is Emily Henry. Yes. Yes. I believe. Yes. Yes. And, um, it's, if you like the two writers in love thing, like this is so good. It's a romance. The woman is a romance novelist. The guy is a literary novelist, kind of, I mean, almost 
identical to even Shane. And they have summer houses next to each other. And they both, you know, they're supposed to be writing. They have total horrible writer's block. They're going broke. It sucks. And so they decide to switch genres. And the guy writes a romance and and the female protagonist writes this like super literary um, situation. And they're both like teaching each other how to do it. And as they're doing that, they fall in love. It's so delightful. Um, And then if you like the whole decade spanning romance, um, my favorite is one day by David Nichols. And it, 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 follows the really it's almost like normal people like it follows the relationship of this couple like you see them on the same day over I think 15 years or 20 years and it's so funny and it's so engrossing and you are just fighting for this couple um and it hits on all these cultural situations and it's very British and I just love it so much I also really love um, The Idea of You by Robin Lee, which is one of the sexiest books I've read in recent years. And it's about a 40-year-old woman who takes her 12-year-old daughter to see her favorite boy band. And the mom <laughs> the mom backstage, uh, she got like special tickets to, for her daughter to meet the lead singer. And the mom and the lead singer end up having this torrid affair. Oh my and gosh, like, stop. But it's, <laughs> but it's like real love and she doesn't know what to do. And, you know, this is her daughter's big crush. It's very Harry Styles. It's very sexy and glamorous and escapist. And I highly recommend it. Oh my gosh, that sounds so good. So we have, uh, that one day is the the movie, is that the movie adaptation with Anne Hathaway? Yes, but the book, I mean, I hate to say this, but the book is so much better. Okay. (laughs) No, the book is everything. You'll love it. I've never actually seen the movie, but I always just remember, you know, Princess Diaries, if Mia Thermopolis is in a movie, I will watch it. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And she's fantastic, but it's just not, not a very good adaptation. Okay. Well, the book is, yeah, the book is the good one. Okay. <laughs> Maybe I will just imagine me a Thermopolis and read the book. Right. <laughs> yes. Do that. Do that. All right. That sounds good. Um, maybe our last question for today then to just kind of wrap everything up is what is next for you? So um, seven days in June um, just got optioned for uh, to be a TV series. Oh so that's gosh. really exciting. Congratulations. Yes, yes. Thank you. Nothing has happened yet. So like, I don't, I wish I could say so-and-so is playing, you know, we're at the very, very beginning stages, but yeah, look out for that. I'm super, super excited. Um, and I have another book idea, but I'm still researching it. So I can't really say too much about it, but I will say that it has something to do with the Harlem Renaissance. Oh my gosh. I cannot wait. I'm so excited. And you know, if anyone can put in a call for Jesse Williams to make a cameo in, in, in your TV show adaptation, we will welcome that with open arms. <laughs> yes, I would love that. Oh my gosh. All right. Well, I think that is it for our interview today. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I had a blast. Thank you for having me. All right. Thanks. And that's our show. 
I'd like to thank Tia Williams for talking with me about Seven Days in June, which is out now from Grand Central Publishing. You can find her on tiawilliams.net and on Instagram at tiaw underscore writes, W-R-I-T-E-S, and on Twitter at tiawilliamswrites. Many thanks to our patrons whose support makes this podcast possible. This episode was produced by me, Joss, and you can find me on social media at Squibbles Reads and edited by Kendra Winchester. Our music is by Mickey Saito with Isaac Green. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at The Reading Women. Thank you so much for listening. 